You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And joining me today is my colleague, Caleb Jasso, who is a policy and digital media associate here at IER. Caleb is a graduate of Pepperdine University, where he received his Bachelor of Arts in History and his Master's of Public Policy with specializations in international relations and national security, as well as state and local policy. Caleb's been doing a lot of good work covering the developments in the Red Sea and its impact on energy markets for us, so that'll be our topic for conversation today. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So an underappreciated part of energy policy is that you get to interact with a lot of different stuff. And a lot of the work that you've been doing has been sort of the geopolitical ramifications of our energy policies and obviously a lot of the stuff that's going on in the Middle East right now. To start, why don't you just talk a little bit broadly about the nexus of energy policy and geopolitics, uh, how they're related and why people who are paying attention to energy issues should be paying attention to that stuff as well. Sure. So to begin, a little background of what I've been studying and diving deep into is exactly mostly focused on the core premise of energy security is national security. And at the end of the day, what powers our society and civilization is truly the lifeblood of modernity. And when it comes to geopolitics, being such a globalized society, no one is truly exempt from the ramifications of large or even minor scaled military-esque confrontations when uh, resources such as oil or natural gas in the region that is currently under or within a conflict. So in terms of what's going on right now, in the Red Sea and why it matters to people outside of the region as well, is the the Red Sea is truly one of the more strategically important trade routes in the world. It serves as a direct connection between Europe and Asia and facilitates approximately 12% of all global trade, including 30% of global container traffic, let alone approximately 8.2 billion barrel million excuse me 8.2 million barrels per day of crude and oil products sailed through the Red Sea between January and November of 2023 so the impact specifically within this region is that approximately 3.9 million barrels per day in 2023 was of northbound traffic going dominated to European markets from the Middle East, Middle Eastern producers, southbound traffic, which interestingly is accounts for mostly Russian uh, products for customers in Asia, was about 2.9 million barrels per day in 2023. Now, oil production approximately within the entirety of the Middle East is around roughly a little over 30 million barrels per day, and that was from 2022. Um, but the region really accounts for about a third of all oil production in the world. So the attacks that the Houthi rebels 
terrorists, insurgents, what would you call them, uh, in Western Yemen, their attacks within the Red Sea, which now account for approximately 29 vessels ranging from container ships to oil and chemical, natural gas container uh, tankers, uh, what this is doing is a multitude of different things. It's number one, underscoring the importance of very specific strategic trade routes, as well as the importance of localizing to whatever extent you can energy production. And I mean that in reference to the extraordinary few years the United States has had in terms of domestic oil production and exportation. To give a little bit more background on the Houthis themselves. Yeah, that, that's what and, I wanted to chat about. Is so, sure. why don't you paint a little bit of a picture of just like who are the players that are involved here? How is this conflict in Israel? Mm-hmm. Um, how has that sort of created this situation? Who are the Houthi rebels? Iran is involved. Mm-hmm. Explain, yeah, <laughs> explain the situation and sort of lay it out. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's sure. not the most uh, simple thing, but yeah. No, it's a. But we'll we'll take a we'll take a fairly bird's eye macro view of this because there are as you said there are multiple players and factors very deep rooted conflicts that have just sort of all at once bubbled to the surface now the houthis they are a secessionary rebel group within yemen they've been around since the 80s 1980s but took a large portion of Western Yemen, including the capital, in 2014 is when they really became rooted. Uh, They were on the list of known terrorist organizations, and President Biden actually took them off of that list up until recently. Um, Their involvement in any of the conflict within the region at all is spurring from their support for Hamas in the Israel-Hamas war. Hamas launched an attack on October 7th, 2023, into Israel that ended up killing... It resulted in 1,200 deaths, primarily Israeli citizens, and it made it the deadliest attack in, in Israel's history since its independence. Uh, Since October 7th, the war between Israel and Hamas has been raging on. Tens of thousands of people have been killed and displaced. It's Gaza being one of the densest urban areas in the world. It's truly horrific fighting, door-to-door stuff. The Houthis began their attacks November 19th. It's about a month after. Let's let's spell out a little bit of what do you mean by attacks? They're attacking container ships. They're right, attacking the sea, container right? so ships the, within the, the Red Sea. Here. There's no direct troop support or anything like that. <clears throat> they saw an opportunity to either disrupt further, to push their own cause by proxy with the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Both, importantly, being proxy organizations supported by Iran. So that kind of becomes the, uh, the, the 
how everybody in this story is 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 related because uh, they make up what's known as kind of the axis of of resistance i believe is what is there yes a, yes the axis of resistance it's, it includes hamas in gaza hezbollah in southern lebanon um but these groups are getting financial support hardware support from iran now it hasn't been entirely proven that they're getting direct day-to-day -day orders from iran but they generally have the same agenda so they began attacking ships within the red sea that had any sort of ties to israel it was their pronounced support for the efforts of hamas against israel and that began when they uh, they took by landing commandos onto the cargo vessel the galaxy leader which they still have in their possession today and up to this point i believe 29 vessels have been either fired upon actually been hit or or hijacked and they have also said they will continue to do so um until further notice indefinitely most likely until there's an actual hard response against them or until things between israel and hamas are are settled we haven't at this point seen extraordinary disruption in volatility and pricing as we have historically for two main reasons number one being hasn't been long enough for there to have been an impact it's only been a couple of months it hasn't been prolonged to the point where we're seeing significant price volatility but the other side of that coin is the immense production that has come out of the united states supplementing what otherwise would have been catastrophic volatile impacts on the market think something like the, the iranian revolution the iran iraq war uh, opec cutting production on a whim those things historically have really sent prices up and down for crude oil but looking at the extraordinary production of the united states which last year ended with about oh the record setting of over 13 million barrels per day that really has established the ability for global markets to sort of navigate what would have historically been a much more turbulent outcome. Yeah, so just real quick to draw the connection between mm -hmm. why this is impacting oil prices, right? So mm -hmm. this is going on in the Red Sea, important trade route. Because these attacks are happening, companies are having to change the direction that they're Yes, their, their ships are having to go. They're having to go around the the coast of Africa Cape instead, of right? Hope. Yeah. Yes. Explain that a little mm -hmm. bit, and then, in terms of who's gonna be impacted the most by this, Europe, from what I understand, is is gonna feel a brunt of it because uh, obviously a lot of their oil is coming through there, um, but then also a lot of shipments to to Asia, right? Mm -hmm. To from the Middle East. So, a lot of companies are now 
choosing the longer route again uh, around the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, for the clear primary reason of the risk of sailing through the Red Sea, because it's also increasing insurance rates. Notable companies that include that have chosen the longer routes, and that list continues to expand, include MSC, Frontline, Evergreen, Maersk, BP, and Shell, uh, to name a few, they are choosing to go all the way around the southern tip of Africa. So this impacts them directly because the time it takes to sail is it's significant in terms of the difference. So they, they vary by the size of the vessel, but larger container vessels, they take approximately 25 days to go from Europe to Asia using the Suez Canal and 34 days going around the Cape of Good Hope. So there's a nine day difference and you are factoring in the time at sea, the fuel used, and also now the rising insurance rates. So this is gonna impact the cost to ship in general, which will eventually be passed down onto the consumer. It's also going to have an impact on countries, both surrounding the Red Sea and all over, Europe especially, getting the amount of oil that they have been getting, uh, Egypt, who controls and profits from the Suez Canal, and they they were they are they profit about seven hundred and forty three million dollars per month on shipping. So when you decrease the amount of ships going, say there are hundreds going through, and then you so you minimize that by about a third, that's really going to impact their profit as well as the uh, shipping companies themselves. The ability for these companies to have to pivot is going to be what actually, pro when we will see those costs really start to accrue and then impact the consumer as well as the price of oil itself. But it's not to the point quite yet that it is significantly weighing on the cost of oil and goods and, and, and gas. One of the things you mentioned is the importance of U.S. oil production and sort of stabilizing uh, oil prices in the global market. We know in foreign policy, there's sort of a bias towards, you know, policymakers getting involved in things overseas, right? And mm -hmm. obviously yeah, the past couple of decades, that's um, been proven to be uh, what they've been interested in. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> is there evidence that when we increase production in energy, is it fair to say that it decreases our likelihood to be involved in stuff overseas? It, it certainly should. Um, when, we, when we as a country allow for domestic production to be unleashed to whatever that means regulatory-wise, we certainly add value to the global marketplace. It adds value to the domestic producers and the domestic consumers, but it should dissuade us from unnecessarily getting involved in foreign conflicts. It should encourage us to be 
far more judicious with our military resources. Uh, I think a, a good example of this could be the uh, natural gas related issues in terms of global dependency on American natural gas. Uh, and now that might be, that's being threatened to be pulled away from our European allies who have come to really heavily depend on it, replacing Russian natural gas. For, for an example, and specifically with oil, if we're producing record levels of, of barrels per day and we're able to export that to help counterbalance the oil produced in very turbulent regions in the in the world it's going to keep prices down and it's also going to at the very least encourage people within our uh, within our congress to not want to get involved un unnecessarily in foreign conflicts that being said though the us is involved that, in that this, being right? said because yeah. it, it comes down so very it, it much should to dissuade them but should, should uh, is the key word yeah. here uh, but over the weekend, I, I think there were strikes over the weekend, right? There were. By the U.S. Talk a little bit about the U.S.'s response, and then what is sort of the outlook? I guess I mean, I'm not asking you to predict the future, but what are people saying about like where is this headed? Are mm -hmm. things escalating, or is the expectation for the U.S.'s response to sort of settle everyone down? And in in terms of what could happen, there are a couple of different paths the U.S., our current administration, could take with the very unfortunate death of three of our members of the Army. With the attack, you, I think the most recent you're, you're referring to is when the three soldiers were killed in northern Jordan. But why this becomes complicated is you have a lot of people split in Congress talking about launching attacks within the borders of Iran, as well as just against the proxies that they fund throughout the region, it's a very, very dangerous, slippery slope. So calculating the exact response in terms of hard, a combination most likely of hard power and soft power will determine whether or not we see a large scale expanded regional conflict that will possibly directly involve Iran, which is why they continually say, don't do it, that that actually is the specific wording that President Biden has been saying. There is, his response to Iran is just saying, don't, don't, don't. It's quite possible that it could spiral out of control into a much larger conflict that involves more direct military intervention and as well as an expansion on of the Israel Hamas war which is already raging on so this could just simply be the straw that breaks the camel's back as it were if it is miscalculated you risk really dragging us into a deadlier conflict than we've seen in a very long time in a region of the world known for having extremely turbulent conflicts and also provides, as I said earlier, about a third of the crude oil to the entire world, which is a lifeblood for modern 
innovation in society. So there are a lot of really big risks moving forward. So two or three things that you're paying attention to going forward and just as it relates to sort of the oil and gas. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, I guess just sort of your outlook going forward. And what we're going to be really trying to follow here is can can the U.S. continue on this incredible expansion of record-setting production to help supplement the world in terms of oil? It's still pro volatile in terms of pricing, but as long as that's maintained, it'll be interesting going forward to see just how long that historic volatility that we have seen can sort of be fended off. The, the moment that they attack a, naval, a, a U.S. naval vessel, then it changes the dynamic entirely. We've already seen that with members of our armed services who were killed, and that already escalated our response. But the, the, the moment that something like that happens, it will really test the response and resolve of our of our military as well as the public opinion the political will of the american people in terms of getting involved in something like this in in the same region that we have been in and out of for so long so definitely trying to follow what hap how if the houthis continue to attack then we will potentially very soon see that impacting the price of oil as well as potentially natural gas. So definitely something to continue to follow are the ability for the U.S. and the West to continue to expand oil production as well as how many attacks can they continue to put forward. As I mentioned, Caleb's done some good writing on this. He had an op-ed in uh, Discourse Magazine back in December and a few blogs this past month on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. I guess today has been Caleb Jasso from IER. Caleb, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you.